Well, it's good to be here. Uh, really have enjoyed our time so far here, and uh, it was good to reconnect with Jordan and see how God's using him, and also to have some time uh, with Jeff and Kathy. We've we've really enjoyed our time with them, and I know that that uh, you as a church are grateful for their ministry to you and, and all the things that God has done through them. And I hope I can just contribute a little bit to that this morning. If you have your Bibles or your phones, uh, if you would look at, um, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. I started doing a study in the book of, speaking of lack of discernment, started doing a um, study in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I thought, okay, the Lord's really preparing me for something. Got about halfway through that study and the pandemic hit. And it was like, oh, okay, interesting. Because <clears throat> the book of Ecclesiastes um, <laughs> it's a very interesting book. Uh, it's not like um, a lot of the other wisdom literature. Uh, there are aspects of it that, you know, clearly it is wisdom literature, but it, it really is a different book. A lot of folks have had a lot of trouble reading the book of Ecclesiastes and understanding what it is that was being said. It's written either by Solomon or more than likely by someone who is giving voice to Solomon. Um, <clears throat> there's a, an introduction and a conclusion to it that makes you think that there's at least an editor but probably is the preacher himself. That's what he calls himself throughout the, um, throughout the book. And there's a lot of uh, good things to talk about from the book of Ecclesiastes, a lot of uh, sobering topics. Uh, I want to just talk about one or two of them. Now, I don't know about you, but I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Most people will say Christmas, you know, but, but I mean, I love Thanksgiving. The best part, what I love about it is when after the meal, I've got um, seven children, 19 grandchildren. And when after the meal, there's 15 adults around the table. Now we've been starting to be joined by some uh, teenagers who are grand, grandchildren coming to the table. We sit, we laugh, we tell stories, we, we engage in leisurely con- conversation and banter with one another. And sometimes just sitting and listening and watching all that's taking place is just the highlight of the year for me. When I'm, when I'm just watching and I'm not talking... It, it can feel almost surreal at times. And I thought about that as I was preparing this particular chapter, chapter 9. And it, it, it dawned on me that it started at the end of chapter 2. Here in this chapter, chapter 9, is the sixth, sixth reference to eat, drink, and be merry. Not to mention the many other times that feasting 
wine, gladness are mentioned. Now, sometimes they're mentioned in terms of these are coping mechanisms, you know, and that's not good. Often it's talked about in kind of a, is that all there is kind of way? But that's not what's happening here in chapter 9. What is Ecclesiastes all about, really? At one level, he's exploring the meaning of life. He's looking for and searching for the meaning of life. He's very straightforward as he says that everything in this life under the sun, he calls it, everything in this life is meaningless, vanity. He goes through all the big questions. Can anything satisfy? Does anything last? Is anyone in control? Is there any comfort? Is there any hope? When will justice come? Is this all there is? And that's where he's at in chapter 9 with that last one. Now, the main point, though, of Ecclesiastes is that he concludes from all of his study, from all of his, you know, going about, spending all of his money, drinking everything he can drink, partying all the time, working hard, raising a family. As he goes through all of the different things, he ends up saying, not just everything is vanity, but he also makes the point that the only thing in life that is certain is death. I don't know if you remember, if you ever saw the movie, uh, What About Bob? Uh, remember Sigmund, his son? Bob and Sigmund are sleeping in the same bedroom, and they're you know, having this conversation. Bob's supposed to be an adult. There's this kid. And uh, all of a sudden, you see Sigmund's eyes get real big, and he's looking out, and he goes, we're all? Gonna die. Bob, you're gonna die. I'm gonna die. We're all going to die. And then I forget what Bob says. <laughs> but it broke the tension and everybody laughs. Sigmund was obviously neurotic, but there there is truth. In what he was saying. The preacher comes across a little neurotic at times. In the book of Ecclesiastes. But he's not lying to us. He's speaking the truth. We all are going to die. Verse 1, chapter 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, 
to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. He's talking about the same event happens to them all, is death. As is good, so is the sinner. And he who swears as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Aren't we happy? (laughs) Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which is where you're going. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those who with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them all. Oh God, I pray that you would help me this morning. Lord, help me to convey what I believe to be your heart through these passages. God, we we need very clear messages coming from you to our hearts so that we will indeed know how to live. God, I pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for the water. So, what is a preacher saying? The reason why I started with the idea of thanksgiving is because I believe what the preacher is communicating in these verses is what Jeffrey Myers calls a table in the mist. You think of that table in the mist, perhaps set in a wooded area that warms your heart and, you know, then it's gone. The preacher isn't just trying to simplify the complexities of life. He's drawing our attention to the profound, to to what is simply profound. I hope to be able to show from this chapter that verses 7 through 10, with supporting ideas from the New Testament, give us a longing for that table in the midst, that it would soon be permanent. That this is a wonderful visual communication and demonstration of what, the, what preaching and living the gospel is all about. So, the section I read, it's easily divided into to three sections. 
the beginning and the ending are typical of Ecclesiastes. Just state it like it is, truth from the preacher. No holes barred, no filter, just like it is. But then right in the middle is this beautiful statement of what our lives lived with meaning are to look like. And so to make it flow in your minds a little better, uh, I'm going to make verses 7 through 10 the third point and do verses 1 through 6 first and then 11 and 12, and you'll see why. Because I think the first thing he's communicating here in verses 1 through 6 is that we as believers, those who trust God, we are broken but ready. You know, the promise of control over our lives is a very seductive thought. We tell ourselves that, that we don't have to be victims of our frailty and our mortality. We, we can define and shape our lives. We can become all that we want to be. We tend to live as if the one thing that is certain, death, will never come. And that all these things out there that are uncertain, riches, fame, success... They're not certain at all. Matter of fact, in other places in Ecclesiastes, he said, oh, yeah, fame, success, great. Second generation after you, your name's going to be gone. Nobody's going to remember. You think about that. I'm thinking, my grandchildren's children. Yeah, I'm thinking, who's my great-grandfather? Like I have to go online, find out the name of my great-grandfather. I don't know how they know, and I don't know, but they do. <laughs> We're forgotten easily. Death is a stark reality, and it's our common human destiny. Nobody gets out of it. We're all going to die. Sigmund's right. During life, both the righteous and the wise are touched by misery and folly. It rains on the just and the unjust, both showers of blessing and torrents of suffering. When you think about under, under the sun, life lived in the here and now, we, can't, we cannot make sense out of the prosperity of the wicked, David calls it. The suffering of the saint, talked about in the New Testament. We... we Job, we get a little glimpse into what happened to Job. But you know, Job didn't have a glimpse into anything about what was happening. He was living through it. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. That was his humble cry. God was there. We know God was there, but sometimes you just can't see it. Death is a stark reality. I remember one Thanksgiving, uh, my father, is, uh, <clears throat> he got old. He contracted a, <clears throat> a, a, a disease called uh, supranuclear palsy, and it's, it's kind of a Parkinson's-like thing, and, except that rather than shaking, you freeze up. Anyway, he, um, uh, his wife put him in a um, nursing care place, but we would go and get him and bring him to, he loved to eat, would go and get him and bring him to meals with us, and so... It was at a point where it was clear things were getting worse, but he had had Thanksgiving dinner with us, and I was driving him back to the place. 
And uh, my father had walked through some things. Uh, uh, he and my mother divorced when I was, I forget now, 24 or something. Sheree and I had just gotten married, I think. Um, and, um, you know, he, he had done, he was a de- he had deacon in a Baptist church and, and all of his life had, you know, communicated things to us uh, about the gospel and taking, you know, I went to church and didn't do a whole lot of good, but I went to church. And, um, <clears throat> but I was driving him, driving him home and it, he was hard to understand. His, his voice was freezing up, but he, he could still talk at the time. And um, his wife, like I said, had put him in a nursing home and, and he was struggling and he, and he said, uh, he said, do you, do you think if, if I commit to living my life well, that God would heal me? Now, as a son who did love his father, that was tough. Because there is the temptation to want to try to make things better, make him feel better. But I said, well, Dad, certainly God can heal you, no doubt about it. But I can't promise that he will heal you if you commit to living your life well. Because that is what we're all called to do. And you need to commit your life, whatever you have left of it, to him, regardless of whether you get physical healing or not. And we talked for a few minutes. And then he said, yes, he wanted to do that. And I prayed with him and he recommitted his life to the Lord. But you cannot bargain with death. You cannot bargain with God to let you out of that. It's the stark reality is we are all going to face death. And the reality is we need to live well. And living well means dying well. And that's really what the preacher's after here. The stark reality of death is not meant to bring us to a place of despair. The world thinks that we can avoid that despair by pretending it's not going to happen, you know? I mean, where, where does your mind go when you think about death? Do you ignore it? Do you embrace it? Dying well does not mean that we are not broken when touched by death. The reality of grief can be suffocating at times. But we, knowing that we are broken, we can still be ready to face that dark reality of death. Death reminds me I'm not God. Death reminds me that the world is still under the effects of the curse, and I'm a part of that. Death reminds me that it is only by the mercy of God that I am not immediately consumed. And it means that I will lay up treasures in heaven, but have an open hand to the things of this world. And it does mean I'm going to pray for supernatural healing until the day the cancer wins. Because I know what God can do. 
Life is worth living because God is God and the living have the opportunity that the dead do not. And that is that we can enjoy and worship God with the life that we have now. That's the point about a deadline and a live dog in verse 5. The Christian path through the madness and the folly of our culture is that to fear God, to live for his glory, and as the New Testament says, keep ourselves from idols, to do what we do in this life with all our might, he says. Find whatever your hand binds to do and do it with all your might. And that includes the ordinary things of life, the eating, the drinking, the relationships. You jump to verses 11 and 12, and I think the point he's making there is that a lot of times we never see it coming. We we tend to treat death as if it's uncertain. We treat the uncertain things as if they are certain. But but sometimes we just it it just creeps up on us. Sheree and I regularly 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 (laughs) sign of getting old too. Um, You know we'll we'll start talking and. Look at each other and think, man. Well, not me looking at her, but her looking at me. Man, we're getting old. (laughs) It went so fast. I don't know if you remember the 1960s movie, Pollyanna. But this priest, I don't know if you know, the preacher comes out. Pollyanna sitting there. Opens his Bible and then screams out, Death comes unexpectedly! Everybody's snickering and laughing. Pollyanna's laughing and, you know, whatever. Here's here's what I think the preacher would say to Pollyanna. (laughs) Forget Karl Marx and he's off the stage now. The movie's about Pollyanna. Here's what I think... The preacher would say to Pollyanna, we live in a world of cause and effect, and we believe that we can master it. But the only sure bet is death itself. I mean, just think, I want to read you a few, just a few headlines and famous statements to make this point. This was a headline. Oh, no, no, this was a statement by a general. The Vietnam War is going well and will succeed. What can be more absurd than a locomotive traveling twice as fast as stagecoach? The abdomen, the chest, and the brain will forever be shut from the intrusion of the surgeon. I, I love this next one. The world market for computers is five. Listen, when he's talking here about the 
race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. He doesn't mean ultimately. I think nine out of ten times the swift do win the race. Nine out of ten times I do think the strong win the battle. The wise do make a good living and the intelligent get great paying jobs. That's why most bookies get rich. They are sure bet. But the one time you decide that you're going to jump on the gravy train, it doesn't work and you lose everything. The preacher is saying, look, there is no sure bet except death. <laughs> yeah, I was going to tell you about my venture into gold, but be too depressing. So we'll, we'll let that go. God is the God of the unforeseen, is the point he's making in verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. He's the God of the unforeseen. We, If we are not living well so that we will die well, we will be subject to the devastation of the unforeseen. Back in chapter 7, actually, he, the preacher has already warned us about some of the things that, that can kind of take us down the wrong path. He talks about, uh, you know, money. He talks about uh, the... the whole issue of, of what, let me see, so there's money, he talks about, oh, there is, um, that we need to be patient, that we don't need to be angry. And then he says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, when we're sitting there at Thanksgiving meal, sometimes things get said like, oh, man, I long for the good old days. And, you know, in, in, in many ways, there, there's no denying that the former days were actually better than these days. But when we start asking that question, Lord, why? Or the former days better than these days. We can too easily deny God's presence in the present. C.S. Lewis calls it nostalgia. You know, we're asking, God, are you still in control? Do you no longer love me? Things are not going as well as they used to. And we get these nostalgic feelings and ideas of the past. And, and C.S. Lewis helps us understand what nostalgia really is. Like my opening illustration, when you, when you sit and listen to the stories and the memories, what are you actually hearing? Lewis talks about the past is, is bittersweet. That we feel lost, but at the same time we see the beauty in the loss. And we long for it. 
And then he kind of smacks us upside the head and says, do you think you are longing what you think you are longing for? And I'm like, what? But let me give you an illustration. We loved, when, when, when we lived in the Washington, D.C. area, and our kids were growing up, every summer we would go to the same beach house in Naxhead, North Carolina. We loved this beach house. The, our kids' fondest memories were Naxhead vacations. And this beach house was just so much fun and, you know, whatever. I mean, even, even the year that I almost drowned doesn't really come to my mind, you know, when, when you know, thinking of Naxhead. And so we had this great idea. All of a, now that all of our kids are married and starting to have children, we thought, all of us, I mean, all my, my sons and daughters said, let's do a, vaca- a family vacation in Naxhead. Let's go back to the beach house. And so they start telling their spouses all about the beach house, all the wonderful you know, experiences that we had, all these different things, and got everybody excited, and we were all going to go to Naxhead. And then when we get there, you should have seen the expressions on the faces of the in-laws. <laughs> this beach house had no air conditioning. It was built in the 40s. The showers were outside off of the deck. (laughs) Did I say there was no air conditioning? We get there in July with, you know, whatever it was, 30 people. And thinking, you know what? (laughs) We didn't quite have 30 people last time we were here. And... (laughs) But we get there, and it is the hottest week that Naxhead has had in like 35 years. Some of the in-laws lasted a couple days. And then it's like, if you want to stay married to me, we're going home. And we're thinking, no, this is great. We love this. Well, I think that's the point he's making here. That C.S. Lewis is making about nostalgia. And that the preacher ultimately is making about our memories. C.S. Lewis says this. The book or the music or the beach house or hillside or ministry job or success or relationship, whatever. In which we thought the beauty was located will betray if we trust in them. For it was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. And we were experiencing that. That not only were the idols dumb, but so were we. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, the news from a far-off land we have not yet seen. Lewis, Lewis is telling us that what God is doing in these memories has given us a glimpse of the intensity of the perfection that none of us have seen. 
We are really longing for the, we're not really longing for the past, but for the future. It's heaven, your sense of home and belonging that has just cracked through the surface of our lives for just a moment. The preacher wants us to graciously receive the reminders from God that we are not in control and that God is merciful when he lets us see and get these glimpses. I, I love James, how James comments on this idea uh, in chapter 4 of the book of James. Excuse me while I thumb my way there. Chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanish. You are a mist. That is not meant to throw us in despair. It's meant to humble us so that we can hear the message of the gospel found even in a book like Ecclesiastes. Let's go back to verses 7 through 9. James' missed reference is the same as the preacher's vanity comment. Vanity. In Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, the word vanity is translated in other sections as vapor or breath or even breeze at one point. And that is why, in this morning's context, I think Myers, the guy I originally spoke of, is right to use the word mist. Just like James does. He's talking about something that's passing, that's non-permanent, that's fleeting. And here's what the preacher wants to encourage us with in these verses. Go. Go. Seize the gifts that God has given. You are dying and you don't have a lot of time. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy these things. He expands a little bit on the eat, drink, and be merry. He says, let your garments be white. And that is not a, some religious reference to holiness. No, he's chiding the super spiritual because when people were distraught, when people were in despair, when, when there was grief, what they wore sackcloth and ashes. And what he's saying is, no, 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 no. Don't think because you're dying that you shouldn't look good. Put on the white garment. Get, get decked out. Fix your hair. Put your makeup on. Trim your beard. Put on cologne. Life is colorful. It's beautiful. It's worth celebrating, regardless of how you feel. Enjoy your spouse. Have fun together. Enjoy that relationship. Cherish the children God has given you, that he brings to you. Listen, what are the things that we remember? We remember a old, run-down Beach house as part of our favorite memories. How does that happen? Because we're focused on our children. We're focused on our relationships. We always took people with us when we went on vacation because it was just so much fun. And it didn't matter how bad the house was. 
It doesn't matter how bad this world around us gets. It doesn't matter. It's a broken down world just like that beach house. But God has called us to live a life that's full. That appreciates what we do have even when there's so much, th- so much lack in our lives. So much that we don't have. I remember church picnics. Listen, I've been preaching for 50 years. My children have heard a large majority of those messages. They've picked out their top five. And just wait for me to preach one that pushes number five out and it comes in. You're not going to remember this message. I mean, you might remember some things. I hope you will remember that God is calling us. To enjoy the life that he's given us. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list. Ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon. Enjoy a movie. Visit the sick. Cook a meal for new moms. Have a jam session. Watch the game. Learn a language. Learn a language. It'll help you. Spend your money. Adopt a child. Speak about Christ. Give away your fortune. Disciple a young kid. Go to community group. Enjoy. What God has given you. How can we talk and how, excuse me, how can we walk this fine line between enjoying God's gifts and not loving the world? How can we love life if it's just a mist and love God and Christ first? Listen, when people make sex their God, they soon find out that it's very disappointing, that it doesn't happen enough, and then they become chained to making it happen. Get in bondage to something that is so fleeting. The woman who worships her children is soon disappointed by them. The father who's putting a lot of stock in what they're going to turn into gets frustrated when they don't do what he wants them to do. Don't go in the direction that he wants them to go. You can fill in the blanks. When we worship God's gifts, they never deliver as promised. They leave us broken and empty. Growing up, heaven seemed to me like just this idea of sitting around on the clouds and playing a harp. (laughs) Everything's peaceful and calm, but nothing happens to kind of get the blood pumping, to raise the heartbeat. It's just, you know, yeah, we're going to just, you know, I don't... (laughs) No wonder people don't think much about heaven. None of us know how to play harps. And there's there's no sense that, well, anything like exciting is going to happen. And what makes C.S. Lewis so clever is that he can bring a magical feel to something that is fleeting. 
He helps us to see the beauty of this world without being put off by the misuse or the idolizing of it. He places it in a very Ecclesiastes perspective. That first quote was from his book, uh, Weight of Glory. This one is from the Narnia series, the last in the Narnia series, The Last Battle. And he explains at the end that we will not enter some super spiritual world, but we will enter what he calls a deeper country. The Bible's clear that the heavenly city comes down to earth and that that new earth, we will live with the Savior forever. Lewis says it like this. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked, like, looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. He's telling us, this is telling us that God does give us a little taste of heaven so that we will long for it. Well, what does that have to do with Ecclesiastes? What, what is he saying? When he says that we eat and we drink and we enjoy life as we vanish from the earth like a vapor, is that what we experience now is to be that foretaste. It's interesting that the preacher throughout Ecclesiastes makes so much out of the table here on earth when so much of the New Testament talks about the table. Tells us that in the future kingdom, is going to be a massive table. One commentator in his, is writing a book on salvation made this statement. Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. <laughs> you think about it. The amount of... It didn't have anything to do with his commentary. He just made that comment. It's like... That might be the only thing I underlined in the commentary. <laughs> that that what, what he's communicating is that the amount of time that Jesus and food are mentioned together is staggering. He, Jesus, really is a picture of what the preacher is holding out before us and how to live in this world. We know that about Jesus, but we so often fail to see how central the table is to his communication of that. How important meals are to ministry. It is in those situations that you find Jesus doing his most significant work. This life is to be enjoyed in relationship with one another, eating, having fellowship, anticipating the great feast to come, but also remembering how costly that fellowship that we have over that meal really is. Jesus uses the bread, the staple of their society. He uses bread to communicate the nature of his suffering. 
to demonstrate by the tearing of the bread, the brokenness that sin brings into this world and the suffering that is a result of it. He takes the wine and he informs them that it will be his blood that will be spilled instead of theirs. That his obedient life would earn our salvation and that to participate in the drinking of the wine is to accept that payment for our sin by the shedding of his blood, which was necessary for our atonement. All of this communicated at a table where they were feasting in their relationships. But it is different from the world. It's not a party. So much as it is Thanksgiving. I told you how surreal Thanksgiving can feel to me at times. We can be laughing and teasing, really connecting with joy. And all of a sudden, someone starts a sentence with, I remember that time. Or, kids, I wish you could have known your papa. Or, man, this gravy is as good as nanny's. Oh, gosh, I miss her. And then the joy becomes a deep, deep longing for the fellowship with the one that's missing. Longing to see them. But in those moments, death doesn't sting as much as it brings a depth of fellowship and the memories that are both poignant and rich. The preacher actually is making a lot of sense. Death, sickness, uncertainty, sorrow, suffering can certainly dislodge us from seeking security in this world. But what makes us long for heaven? What makes us homesick for a land that we've not been to are the gifts that we experience in the here and now. It's it's as if we've wandered into this beautiful meadow, all neatly dressed, all ready for this perfect meal with the perfect weather. There's smell of just all the good, delicious foods that we can imagine, the scent of great wine, the laughter of those that we cherish. And we begin to realize that not only does it feel like a dream, but there's a mist that's beginning to cover it. And what we really want is for that not to disappear, for the mist not to eat that up. We want that to be permanent. We want that to be our regular experience. That's how we want to live, laughing, shedding tears, enjoying one another in fellowship. We shed a tear. It's a tear of longing, a tear of joy. And one day, it will not just be our family. But the family we've been born again into. And at the head spot, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be my father. It's not going to be my grandfather. It's going to be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to know that what we are experiencing now, at that point, was the reality that we only feel and sense as a mist, as a vapor that's passing away. Oh, God, I pray. I pray, Lord God, that whatever trials and troubles and tribulations that are 
evidenced here in this room, Lord, that are causing folks to, to, to feel lost, to feel broken, to feel uh, confused. God, that those things are meant not to destroy our lives, not to destroy our relationships, but to tear us away from our false dreams and false visions and, 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 and things that are not going to be permanent so that we can see that what makes continuing to pray for that lost child so necessary, what makes working hard to make that to mend that broken relationship, what, what makes it worthwhile to stay in that marriage that is so difficult and challenging is that they are the vapor that is passing. And what we're longing for, what we're seeing in the richness of our relationships and the joy of life and fellowship, it's just a longing for what is yet to come. Oh God, thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you, Lord, that the table itself communicates the truth of the gospel, that we are broken, we are sinners, and our Savior has set us free. And that means because of his obedient life, he earned heaven for us. We will experience the permanent table because of what Jesus did in the mist here on earth. Oh God, draw us to yourself, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Benny. Uh, Church, as we have heard the word and we have been stirred, our commission now, in when we think about going, we go to Thursday, particularly. We go... Making disciples, how disciples learn of the Father, they learn of heaven, and they experience it now. We teach to observe. This is how we do that. We, we enjoy Thursday as a foretaste of the glory of heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's read this together. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. Be blessed.